There are more than 300 episodes of Listen to Sleep, all available for free because of the generous support of our sponsors. And while you'll never hear any ads after the story or meditation starts, you can get every episode ad-free, plus over 100 bonus episodes, all for less than the price of one cup of coffee a month by going to listentosleep.com and clicking on support. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep. It's officially autumn here on the mountain, and as the days get shorter and the leaves start to fall, I thought it would be a good time to read something that's just a little creepy and a lot sleepy. So this week, I'm reading The Amputated Arms by Danish author Jorgen Wilhelm Bergso. It's basically about 19th century medical school dorm life but with grave robbing. It's also a long, short story, so I've divided it up into two parts, part one this week and part two next week. If you can't wait to find out how it ends, you can read it for yourself for free online. Check the show notes for the episode at www.listentosleep.com for a link to download the story. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider showing your support by subscribing to it and writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps. You can also link to it or share it on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at Listen to Sleep. And now, The Amputated Arms by Jorgen Wilhelm Bergso. It happened when I was about 18 or 19 years old, began Dr. Simpson. I was studying at the university and being coached in anatomy by my old friend Soling. He was an amusing fellow, this Soling, full of jokes and whimsical ideas, and equally merry whether he was working at the dissecting table or brewing a punch for a jovial crowd. He had but one fault— if one might call it so. And that was his exaggerated idea of punctuality. 
He grumbled if you were late two minutes. Any longer delay would spoil the entire evening for him. He himself was never known to be late, at least not during the entire years of my studying. One Wednesday evening, our little circle of friends met as usual in my room at seven o'clock. I had made the customary preparations for the meeting, had borrowed three chairs, I had but one myself, had cleaned all my pipes, and had persuaded Hans to take the breakfast dishes from the sofa and carry them downstairs. One by one, my friends arrived. The clock struck seven, and to our great astonishment, Soling had not yet appeared. One, two, even five minutes passed before we heard him run upstairs and knock at the door with his characteristic short blows. When he entered the room, he looked so angry and at the same time so upset that I cried out, What's the matter, Soling? You look as if you had been robbed. That's exactly what has happened, replied Soling angrily. But it was no ordinary sneak thief, he added, hanging his overcoat behind the door. What have you lost? asked my neighbor Nansen. Both arms from the new skeleton I've just recently received from the hospital, said Soling with an expression as if his last scent had been taken from him. It's vandalism. We burst out into loud laughter at this remarkable answer. But Soling continued, Can you imagine it? Both arms are gone, cut off at the shoulder joint. And the strangest part of it is that the same thing has been done to my shabby old skeleton which stands in my bedroom. There wasn't an arm on either of them. That's too bad, I remarked, for we were just going to study the anatomy of the arm tonight. Osteology, corrected Soling gravely. Get out your skeleton, little Simpson. It isn't as good as mine, but it will do for this evening. I went to the corner where my anatomical treasures were hidden behind a green curtain. The museum was what Soling called it. But my astonishment was great when I found my skeleton in its accustomed place and wearing, as usual, my student's uniform but without arms. The devil, cried Soling. That was done by the same person who robbed me. The arms are taken off at the shoulder joint in exactly the same manner. You did it, Simpson. I declared my innocence, very angry at the abuse of my fine skeleton, while Nansen cried, Wait a moment, I'll bring in mine. There hasn't been a soul in my room since this morning. I can swear to that. I'll be back in an instant. He hurried into his room, but returned in a few moments, greatly depressed and somewhat ashamed. The skeleton was in its usual place, but the arms were gone, cut off at the shoulder in exactly the same manner as mine. The affair, mysterious in itself, had now come to be a serious matter. We lost ourselves in suggestions and explanations, none of which seemed to throw 
any light on the subject. Finally, we sent a messenger to the other side of the house, where, as I happened to know, was a new skeleton which the young student Ravan had recently received from the janitor of the hospital. Ravan had gone out and taken the key with him. The messenger whom we had sent to the rooms of the Iceland students returned with the information that one of them had used the only skeleton they possessed to pummel the other with, and that, consequently, only the thigh bones were left unbroken. What were we to do? We couldn't understand the matter at all. Soling scolded and cursed, and the company was about to break up when we heard someone coming noisily upstairs. The door was thrown open, and a tall, thin figure appeared on the threshold. Our good friend, Niels Dye. He was a strange chap, this Niels Dye. The true type of a species seldom found nowadays. He was no longer young, and by reason of a queer chain of circumstances, as he expressed it, he had been through nearly all the professions, and could produce papers proving that he had been on the point of passing not one, but three examinations. He had begun with theology, but the story of the quarrel between Jacob and Esau had led him to take up the study of law. As a law student, he had come across an interesting poisoning case, which had proved to him that a study of medicine was extremely necessary for lawyers. And he had taken up the study of medicine with such energy that he had forgotten all his law and was about to take his last examinations at the age of forty. Niels Dye took the story of our troubles very seriously. Every pot has two handles, he began. Every sausage, two ends. Every question, two sides. Except this one. This has three. When we look at it from the legal point of view, there can be no doubt that it belongs in the category of ordinary theft. But from the fact that the thief took only the arms when he might have taken the entire skeleton, we must conclude that he is not in a responsible condition of mind, which, therefore, introduces a medical side to the affair. From a legal point of view, the thief must be convicted for robbery, or at least for the illegal appropriation of the property of others. But from the medical point of view, we must acquit him, because he is not responsible for his acts. Here we have two professions quarreling with one another, and who shall say which is right? But now I will introduce the theological point of view, and raise the entire affair up to a higher plane. Providence, in the material shape of a patron of mine in the country, whose children I have inoculated with the juice of wisdom, has sent me two fat geese and two first-class ducks. These animals are to be cooked and eaten this evening in Matthiasen's establishment, and I invite this honored company 
to join me there. Personally, I look upon the disappearance of these arms as an all-wise intervention of providence, which sets its own inscrutable wisdom up against the wisdom which we would otherwise have heard from the lips of my venerable friend, Soling. Daya's confused speech was received with laughter and applause and Soling's weak protests were lost in the general delight at the invitation. I have often noticed that such improvised festivities are usually the most enjoyable, and so it was for us that evening. Niels Dye treated us to his ducks and to his most amusing jokes. Soling sang his best songs. Our jovial host, Matthiasen, told his wittiest stories, and the merriment was in full swing when we heard cries in the street, and then a rush of confused noises broken by screams of pain. There's been an accident, cried Soling, running out to the door. We all followed him and discovered that a pair of runaway horses had thrown a carriage against a tree, hurling the driver from his box under the wheels. His right arm had been broken near the shoulder. In the twinkling of an eye, the hall of festivities was transformed into an emergency hospital. Soling shook his head as he examined the injury and ordered the transport of the patient to the city hospital. It was his belief that the arm would have to be amputated, cut off at the shoulder joint, just as had been the case with our skeleton. Damned odd coincidence, isn't it? he remarked to me. Our merry mood had vanished, and we took our way, quiet and depressed, through the old avenues toward our home. For the first time in its existence, possibly, our venerable barracks, as we called the dormitory, saw its occupants returning home from an evening's bout just as the night watchman intoned his eleven o'clock verse. Just eleven? exclaimed Soling. It's too early to go to bed, and too late to go anywhere else. We'll go up to your room, little Simpson, and see if we can't have some sort of a lesson this evening. You have your colored plates, and we'll try to get along with them. It's a nuisance that we should have lost those arms just this evening. The doctor can have all the arms and legs he wants, grinned Hans, who came out of the doorway just in time to hear Soling's last word. "'What do you mean, Hans?' asked Soling in astonishment. "'It'll be easy enough to get them,' said Hans. "'They've torn down the planking around the Holy Trinity churchyard and dug up the earth to build a new wall. I saw it myself as I came past the church. Lord, what a lot of bones they've dug out there!' There's arms and legs and heads, many more than the doctor could possibly need. Much good that does us, answered Soling. They shut the gates at seven o'clock, and it's after eleven already. Oh, yes, they shut them, grinned Hans again. But there's another way to get in. If you go through the gate of the porcelain factory and over the courtyard, and through the mill in the fourth courtyard that leads out into Spring Street. There, you will see where the planking is torn down, 
and you can get into the churchyard easily. Hans, you're a genius, exclaimed Soling in delight. Here, Simpson, you know that factory inside and out. You're so friendly with that fellow Outson who lives there. Run along to him and let him give you the key of the mill. It will be easy to find an arm that isn't too much decayed. Hurry along now. The rest of us will wait for you upstairs. To be quite candid, I must confess that I was not particularly eager to fulfill Soling's command. I was at an age to still have a sufficient amount of reverence for death and the grave, and the mysterious occurrence of the stolen arms still ran through my mind. But I was still more afraid of Soling's irony and the laughter of my comrades, so I trotted off as carelessly as if I had been sent to buy a package of cigarettes. It was some time before I could arouse the old janitor of the factory from his peaceful slumbers. I told him that I had an important message for Outson, and hurried upstairs to the latter's room. Outson was a strictly moral character. Knowing this, I was prepared to have him refuse me the key which would let me into the fourth courtyard, and from there into the cemetery. As I expected, Outson took the matter very seriously. He closed the Hebrew Bible which he had been studying as I entered, turned up his lamp, and looked at me in astonishment as I made my request. Why, my dear Simpson, it is a most sinful deed that you are about to do, he said gravely. Take my advice and desist. You will get no key from me for any such cause. The peace of the grave is sacred. No man dare disturb it. And how about the grave digger? He puts the newly dead down beside the old corpses and lives as peacefully as anyone else. He is doing his duty, answered Outson calmly. But to disturb the peace of the grave from sheer daring, with the fumes of the punch still in your head, that is a different matter. That will surely be punished. His words irritated me. It is not very flattering, particularly if one is not yet twenty, to be told that you are about to perform a daring deed simply because you are drunk. Without any further reply to his protests, I took the key from its place on the wall and ran downstairs two steps at a time, vowing to myself that I would take home an arm, let cost what it would. I would show Outson and Soling and all the rest what a devil of a fellow I was. My heart beat rapidly as I stole through the long, dark corridor, past the ruins of the old convent of St. Clara, into the so-called third courtyard. Here I took a lantern from the hall, lit it, and crossed to the mill where the clay was prepared for the factory. The tall wheels and cylinders, with their straps and bolts, looked like weird creatures of the night in the dim light of my tallow candle. I felt my courage sinking even here. But I pulled myself together, 
opened the last door with my key and stepped out into the fourth courtyard. A moment later, I stood on the dividing line between the cemetery and the factory. The entire length of the tall, blackened planking had been torn down. The pieces of it lay about, and the earth had been dug up to considerable depth to make a foundation for a new wall between life and death. The uncanny emptiness of the place seized upon me. I halted involuntarily, as if to harden myself against it. It was a raw, cold, stormy evening. The clouds flew past the moon in jagged fragments, so that the churchyard, with its white crosses and stones, lay now in full light, now in dim shadow. Now and then a rush of wind rattled over the graves, roared through the leafless trees, bent the complaining bushes, and caught itself in the little eddy at the corner of the church, only to escape again over the roofs, turning the old weather vane with a sharp scream of the rusty iron. I looked toward the left. There I saw several weird white shapes moving gently in the moonlight. White sheets, I said to myself. It's nothing but white sheets. This drying of linen in the churchyard ought to be stopped. I turned in the opposite direction and saw a heap of bones scarce two paces distant from me. Holding my lantern lower, I approached them and stretched out my hand. There was a rattling in the heap. Something warm and soft touched my fingers. I started and shivered. Then I exclaimed, The rats! Nothing but the rats in the churchyard! I must not get frightened. It will be so foolish. They would laugh at me. Where the devil is that arm? I can't find one that isn't broken. With trembling knees and in feverish haste, I examined one heap after another. The light in my lantern flickered in the wind and suddenly went out. The foul smell of the smoking wick rose to my face, and I felt as if I were about to faint. It took all my energy to recover my control. I walked two or three steps ahead and saw at a little distance a coffin, which had been still in good shape when taken out of the earth. I approached it and saw that it was of old-fashioned shape, made of heavy oaken boards that were already rotting. On its cover was a metal plate with an illegible inscription. The old wood was so brittle that it would have been very easy for me to open the coffin with any sort of tool. I looked about me and saw a hatchet and a couple of spades lying near the fence. I took one of the latter, put its flat end between the boards. The old coffin fell apart with a dull, crackling protest. I turned my head aside, put my hand in through the opening, felt about, and taking a firm hold on one arm of the skeleton, I loosened it from the body with a quick jerk. The movement loosened the head as well, 
and it rolled out through the opening right to my very feet. I took up the skull to lay it in the coffin again, and then I saw a greenish, phosphorescent glimmer in its empty eye sockets, a glimmer which came and went. Mad terror shook me at the sight. I looked up at the houses in the distance, and then back again to the skull. The empty sockets shone more brightly than before. I felt that I must have some natural explanation for this appearance, or I would go mad. I took up the head again, and never in my life have I had so overpowering an impression of the might of death and decay than in this moment. Myriads of disgusting, clammy insects poured out of every opening of the skull, and a couple of shining, worm-like centipedes, geophiles, the scientists call them, crawled about in the eye sockets. I threw the skull back into the coffin, sprang over the heaps of bones without even taking time to pick up my lantern, and ran like a hunted thing through the dark mill over the factory courtyards until I reached the outer gate. Here I washed the arm at the fountain and smoothed my disarranged clothing. I hid my booty under my overcoat, nodded to the sleepy old janitor as he opened the door to me, and a few moments later I entered my own room with an expression which I had attempted to make quite calm and careless. "'What the devil is the matter with you, Simpson?' cried Soling as he saw me. "'Have you seen a ghost? Or is the punch wearing off already? We thought you'd never come. Why, it's nearly twelve o'clock.' Without a word, I drew back my overcoat and laid my booty on the table. 